You're listening to The Taylor Marshall Show, a special episode series, my commentary on the book of Revelation. I'm calling it The Catholic Apocalypse. We're going to go through the entire book of Revelation as you, the listeners, have requested. So let's get started. Howdy and welcome to the Taylor Marshall Show. We're going to get into chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Revelation. In my opinion, probably the two most difficult passages to interpret. I have some things that are a little bit controversial, but I think it's going to make a lot of sense as we begin to break it down. So let's turn now chapter 10, chapter 11, the book of Revelation. Well, last time we looked at the first six trumpets. And we're going to move in this week to the final trumpet and the final angel. And the reason we broke the trumpets into two episodes or two parts this time around is there's a giant two-chapter interlude between the sixth trumpet and the sixth angel and then the seventh trumpet and the seventh angel. We also find ourselves right in the middle of the book of Revelation, chapter 10, chapter 11. This is kind of a climax in the middle of the book. I'm very excited about today's topics. There's something a little bit controversial right here at the beginning of chapter 10 regarding this gigantic angel that appears to us. So let's go ahead and get started. As usual, I'll read the text and then begin the commentary. Verse 10, chapter 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. End quote. So here we have a gigantic angel. This is a huge angel. We've not seen any angel like this in the book of Revelation. We've never seen an angel like this in the entire Bible. This is a unique, uh, I don't want to say person, but maybe I'll say that. It's a unique person. It's a unique description. So who is this angel? Well, we know that this angel is not the seventh angel. We've had a series of six angels, and each of the angels have a trumpet. Here, we're expecting to see the seventh angel and his trumpet, and instead we see a gigantic angel And instead of having a trumpet in his hand, he has a scroll. Now, don't worry, as we get to the end of chapter 11, that seventh angel is going to pop up, and he is going to blow his seventh trumpet, his seventh horn, and that's going to bring about the Ark of the Covenant and then the Blessed Virgin Mary, as we'll see in the next episode. So we have to ask ourselves, who is the giant angel? And there's a bunch of clues here. I'm going to suggest, and this is kind of the controversial thing that I mentioned in the uh, the opening music, that this angel is Jesus Christ. Now, hold on. I'm not saying that Jesus Christ is an angel. I'm not an Arian. I'm not trying to demote Christ. Christ is consubstantial with the Father. He is fully God. He is fully man, just as we learn in the Council of Chalcedon, in the Council of Ephesus, in the First Council of Constantinople, at the Council of Nicaea. Christ is God. He's the Son of God. He is the equal second person of the Trinity. But we find in Scripture and in the Church Fathers, and especially in the Greek Church Fathers, an awareness that the word angel 
doesn't always mean an angelic being, someone who's of the angelic species, as Thomas Aquinas would say. As we saw in our, I think it was our second episode here in the Book of Revelation series, that the angels of the seven churches are actually men, because in Greek, angelos doesn't necessarily mean angel. It can also, well, primarily, not also, but primarily it means a messenger, one who comes to testify, one who comes to relate a message. And I think as we look at these opening verses in chapter 10, we can see that the mighty angel, the strong angel, has a lot of divine attributes. He's larger, he's different than all other angels, and the way he's dressed and the way he's described speaks of Jesus Christ himself. Also, the fact that he is holding the scroll and it's ready to be opened harkens back to just a few chapters before. We had the lamb who was worthy to open the scroll. The lamb was an image of Christ, and here we have a gigantic, I mean huge angel. He puts one foot on the sea and another on the land, so he's like you know, a giant walking upon the earth. He's able to tread oceans, tread continents. This is a huge angel. The first thing it said in, in verse 1, he's, a, he's strong, he's mighty. And then we read that he is clothed with a cloud. Clothed with a cloud. And we see, you know, in the Psalms that God clothes himself in a cloud. We know that Christ in his ascension went up in a cloud. The book of Daniel speaks of Christ coming on the cloud. So the idea of being wrapped, enveloped, or clothed with the clouds is a divine attribute, and it's given to Christ in the Gospels. And the Gospels are just drawing on what we see in the Old Testament. That is that God is clothed with the cloud as he lives in the tabernacle. So in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, we see that God is clothed with the cloud. He dwells within the cloud that hovers over the tabernacle. It's a symbol of the real presence. Okay, so this this mighty angel, and I'm going to stop calling him an angel, and I'm going to start calling him the messenger, capital M, messenger. Our gigantic messenger is clothed with a cloud. Also, he has a rainbow crowning his head. Now, we've already seen the rainbow mentioned earlier back in chapter 4, but the book of Ezekiel identifies God with the radiance of a rainbow. And of course, this all harkens back to the book of Genesis, where God establishes the rainbow with Noah as a sign of his mercy, as a sign of his covenant. And that rainbow, or that bow, points up towards heaven. It's a bow, like a bow and arrow, and it's aimed towards God. And as I've talked about in other podcasts and posts I've written and books I've written, this signifies in the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, that God has, although man sinned, God plans to die for man's sin. And this is why the bow, and in the original Hebrew it doesn't say rainbow, it's just a bow, like a bow and arrow. A bow is, a rainbow is pointed where? Up to heaven. It's like a handgun pointed to the heavens. It's God saying, I will take the penalty of death that Adam and Eve merited for mankind. And here we see that sign of the covenant on his head. Just as Christ wore the crown of thorns, 
The thorns were a sign of Adam's disobedience in his sin, so Christ is the new Adam. He also wears this crown of the rainbow. We also see that this messenger has a face like the sun, and we see this in Revelation chapter 1. We've already gone through that. We also see it when Christ is transfigured, the transfiguration, the fourth luminous mystery. Um, Christ shines. And in the Old Testament prophets, um, the Messiah is described with solar descriptions. So in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness, and he's the dawn spring from on high, as we read in Zechariah's canonical. So the attribute of the sun, and then it described as his face, again, I think, is a depiction of this messenger, this capital A angel, as Christ himself. Now, what's even more convincing, I think, is that this messenger, this giant messenger that comes down with this scroll, ready to give it to John, has legs like pillars of fire. And this is referring to the pillar of fire and cloud. It was the glory cloud, the Shekinah cloud that we read about in Exodus at the tabernacle. And we know from Exodus that God walked in the midst of the people of God because of his real presence there at the tabernacle. So that the fact that the fact here that the messenger, his legs are these pillars of fire, seems to indicate that this is Yahweh. This is Jehovah. This is the God of Israel. So again, divine attributes. We see that this messenger is holding a little scroll, a little book, and he places his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, as I've mentioned before, in the book of Revelation and in prophetic literature and in Jewish um, symbolic theology, the sea represents the Gentiles. The land represents the people of the promised land, those who will inherit the land, the Israelites. So we see here um, that Christ is standing on the sea and the land, the Gentiles and the Jews. Now I need to keep on reading here for this to make sense. And when the seven, this is verse four, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay, but that the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God, as he announced to his servants the prophets, should be fulfilled. Okay, so he's standing on the sea and the land, and then the thunders begin to speak. And it says there's seven thunders. Now, who or what are the seven thunders? All over the book of Revelation, we're seeing this sevenfold something. In chapter 1, we read about the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit. And in chapter 4, we read about the seven torches. And 
most commentators agree that this seven spirit or the seven torches is the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this, I think it was in our podcast on Revelation chapter 4, about the Trinitarian imagery right there in chapter 4 before we move into the liturgical uh, symbolism that's in chapter 5. So we have this very strong Trinitarian manifestation. And again here we have these seven thunders because the thundering of God is always related to the voice of God. And it's the Spirit that is the voice of God. It's the Spirit that teaches us. And right here we see once again that the sevenfold thunder speaks. But what's interesting is God says, seal it up. Don't let mankind have it. Instead, as we're going to see, mankind gets the little scroll. He doesn't get what's all, everything revealed by the sevenfold thunder. He gets a little scroll. And this is put there to humble us. Humans want to know everything. And when we suffer in our lives and we go through hardships, or when we're confused about theology or the providence of God, we want to know the inner workings of God's counsel. And God's response to us is, no, you don't get to know everything. And that's hard. That's hard for people like me. You know, I'm a theologian. That's my profession. It's hard to know that, yes, there are things that we are not allowed to know. There are theological things that God will not reveal to us. Some things are just sealed up, and that's his prerogative. So he reveals what we need to know, what we need to know to know him and to love him, but there are some things that we don't know, and there are, some, there are things we will never know. Why? Because our minds are not infinite. God's mind's infinite. Our mind is finite. Okay, so back to the passage here he's hold oh he holds up his right hand and he testifies this is the stance of a witness in court this is christ instituting his new covenant he's making a legal stance a legal position he's swearing by god almighty and by the way to swear an oath in hebrew is to seven oneself it's to make a seven it's the same word in, in Hebrew, and same idea in the Hebrew mind. So by the sevenfold thunders speaking and then this messianic messenger striking a pose of testimony and of witness, he is instituting a covenant, an oath. It's the new covenant. It's the new oath. It's the new law. And notice that when he cries out with a loud voice, it's compared to as when a lion roars. Again, Christ is the Lion of Judah. We see this in the book of, at the end of the book of Revelation. I think this also confirms for us that this giant messenger is Christ because he is a lion. We've seen him as the lamb before in the book of Revelation. Now we see him manifested in a different way with the, with the sun in his face and the pillars of fire in his legs. And when he speaks with his voice, it's like the Lion of Judah. He is the Lion of Judah. And he's making this great testimony in heaven, but he's got his feet on the sea and the earth. So there's an incarnational element to this, that although he is majestic and gigantic, his feet touch the earth. So this is, this is an incarnate one. And then, he, after he lifts his right hand up to heaven and he swears the oath, he says there will be no more delay. No more. 
It's time for things to happen. And this goes back into Revelation 4 and 5, where we see the martyrs saying, How long, Lord? How long? How long? And we see the lamb on the altar, who is Christ. Well, now the lamb has turned into this gigantic messenger with the voice of a lion. He says, okay, the sixth trumpet has been blown. That's it. I'm about to send out the seventh angel for the seventh trumpet, and things are about to get real. And then he said, there's spoken here, the mystery of God is accomplished. Now, what is the mystery of God? In order to find that answer, we have to turn to St. Paul, because he is very clear to us what the mystery of God is. He talks about how the mystery of God has been revealed. Formerly it was withheld, but it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. That's in Ephesians chapter 3. And that the mystery was hidden, quote, this is in Colossians, the mystery was, quote, hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, end quote. So what is the mystery? Paul tells us, quote, this is Ephesians, quote, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel, end quote. What is the mystery of God that's been planned from eternity past? It's to bring the Gentiles into the community of Israel. The Catholic Church is the new Israel. In this great mystery that scandalized the Pharisees and scandalized the people around Christ and even scandalized the apostles at first is the mystery of God. And this, by the way, perfectly confirms the Judaic or Hebrew understanding of the sea being the Gentiles and the land being the Israelites. The seas are all the waves, the great expanse of all the people, untamed, chaotic. The land focuses on the promised land. It's steady. It's where God's covenant and promises have been. A land, not a sea, a land was given to Abraham and his descendants. And so Christ, he has his legs, these pillars of fire. One's on the sea, one's on the land. And then, of course, he's, the mystery of God is revealed. That means that Christ came for both. The church stands both on the Gentiles and on the Jews. This is really amazing. This is, this is great theology, by the way. Of course, it's you know inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's why. But this is the mystery of God proclaimed and taught by Jesus Christ himself. Verse 8, Then the voice which I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel, in the hand of the messenger, who is standing upon the sea and the land. So I went to the angel, I went to the messenger, and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat. Now, that's kind of Eucharistic. Take and eat. Who else said that in the Bible? Jesus Christ. Take it and eat it. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. End quote. I just can't help but to get Eucharistic in this passage. Okay? The little scroll is the scroll that we saw before that the Lamb of God was able to open. It's now being presented to St. John. And what is that scroll? 
it is the new covenant. The scroll is the new covenant. It's the new testimony, the new testament, the new oath, the new law. We just saw this gigantic messenger. He stood on the sea. He stood on the land. He stood on the Gentile. He stood on Israel. And he lifted up his right hand to heaven and he swore by God the Father. This is Christ. And now he's taking the new covenant and he's handing it to John, his apostle, and saying, take and eat. By the way, the only time Christ ever used the word new covenant in his entire recorded mystery in all four of the Gospels, the only time we see the word new covenant or new, yeah, new testament ever mentioned by Jesus Christ is when he instituted the chalice at the Last Supper. It's the only time he mentions the word covenant or new covenant is when he institutes the Eucharist. And so I think the fact that he's taking this scroll, which represents a new law, a new covenant, a final covenant, and when he gives it to his apostle, John, he tells him to eat it. This means that the new covenant is wrapped up in sacramental consumption. What he says next is important to us as Christians. He says, take it and eat. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. End quote. What does this mean? Well, I think all of us as Christians, as baptized followers of Jesus Christ, can relate to this. Because when we receive the gospel, when we receive the new covenant, it was sweet in our mouth. It tasted like honey. It was great. I'm a convert. When I became Catholic, there was a honeymoon element about it. There was a sweetness. There was an excitement. But the longer you're Christian, the more you realize that the sweetness in your mouth sometimes is accompanied, well, maybe I'll have to say always. I don't know. You guys can debate it. Leave a comment in the show notes. I'm going to go ahead and say always comes with it a bitterness in the stomach. As your eyes adjust to grace, as your soul is purified from mortal sins and venial sins, and you begin to look at the world, you begin to see how much brokenness there is, how much heartache there is. You look into your own past and you see the wounds, you see the damage, you look at relationships that you have or that you had or that other people have, and you just see the brokenness of it all. There is a kind of bitterness, and I think we see this especially in the life of Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary. She had no sin. She was totally pure, totally immaculate. God's word was sweet as honey on her lips, but I think her stomach was bitter, and her heart was made bitter by the sins of man and by the suffering in this world. And I think that's okay. That's how God meant it to be. By the way, this whole imagery is taken from Ezekiel chapter 3, where he also eats a scroll. But here, I think it's even more powerful. And he's given the scroll, you know, by God so that he'll eat the scroll. It's sweet. It goes into his stomach. And then that scroll is what gives him the power to preach and prophesy and proclaim. That's exactly what's happening here for John. I think it's exactly what happens for all of us. We experience the sweetness. We experience the bitterness. It's sweet and sour sauce. That's it right there. The new covenant is sweet and sour sauce. That's what we learn right here in this passage with the scroll.
Okay, moving on, we're going to finish up here. We're almost at the end of chapter 10. And in this episode, we'll move into chapter 11, which will get us to the seventh trumpet. And then in the next episode, we'll be able to talk about the woman clothed in the sun, the Blessed Mother. Okay, so back into chapter 10 here, verse 10. And I, that's John, I took the little scroll from the hand of the messenger and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings, end quote. So we see the same prophetic duty or vocation that Ezekiel had now given to St. John the Apostle. There's a sweetness. You've been chosen by God. He's given you his graces. But now there is this sort of revolt, this discomfort in your guts. And it's what leads you to go out and make a difference, to be salt and light. And now he has to go and he has to prophesy to the Gentiles. Here we have all the code words for it. Many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So there's a Gentile message. But interestingly, chapter 11, and by the way, all these chapter markings are are uh, imposed later on. They're not part of John's gospel. Immediately, the next verse in chapter 11 says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So it's like, you know, we're just going back and forth, back and forth. You have to go and you have to prophesy to the Gentiles, the nations, the peoples, the tongues, the kings. Oh, oh, and now you're back in Jerusalem. you got to measure the temple. So we're just going back and forth like a ping pong ball between the Gentiles and Israel, and Israel to the Gentiles, and Gentiles to the Israel. This is really probably one of the top three interpretive skills, uh, skills, interpretive um, keys to the book of Revelation is reading everything in terms of Gentile and Jew, nations and Israel. So now John is given a measuring rod, and he's told to measure the temple. This, I think, argues for an early dating of the book of Revelation. Um, I, like I said in the very first episode, I think Revelation was written on parchment, on paper with, a, with ink, in the 90s AD. But I think it was written during the Jewish-Roman War in the 60s AD. And one of the reasons I think that, and many other Catholic commentators and fathers have suggested is that the temple is still standing. You can't tell John, the apostle, to go and measure the temple, even if it's mystical, if the temple on earth has been destroyed, and the temple was destroyed in the year A.D., the year of our Lord, 70. So the book of Revelation here assumes that the temple is still standing, and mystically John has to go and measure it. But in verse 2, it says, But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, to the Gentiles, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. Okay, so he doesn't measure the temple. And by measuring it, he's um, denoting it for God. When you measure something, you canonize it. In fact, that's where we get the word canonization or canonizing. A canon in Greek, like in this 
context right here is a measuring rod. And so you take a measuring rod and you hold it up to something. And if it meets the right measurement, it's in. It's kind of like when you go to Disneyland or Disney World or Epcot or Six Flags or any amusement park and you want to go on a ride, at the entrance is either something posted there or a person standing there with a measuring stick. I, was, I went to Six Flags not long ago with my daughters. The people there tending the rides have a measuring stick, a canon, a cannon, and kids walk up to it, and if their head is not high enough, they cannot ride the ride. So you canonize something by measuring it to the stick. We canonize saints. We have a stick and said, so this is what holy people should be. This is what followers of Jesus Christ look like, and we hold it up to people after they die. We say, yeah, this person measures up. We canonize them. They meet the canon. Same thing with the Bible. We take books. We say, this is what inspired, inerrant scriptures look like. And we take a book like 1 Peter and we hold it up to that standard. Yes, 1 Peter meets it. That is a canonical book. It is canonized. It's part of the biblical canon. So here, St. John is asked to go to the earthly temple and to canonize it. He's to measure it. He's to hold up a stick to it and find it worthy. But God says, look, don't canonize the outer court. That's been given to the Gentiles. They are going to trample it. They are going to disgrace it for 42 months. Now, why 42 months? We're going to see this more and more in the book of Revelation. 42 months is three and a half years. It equals 1,260 days. It's taken from the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where three and a half years, is it's related to the 70 weeks prophecy, which is a wonderful prophecy. If you're a member of the New St. Thomas Institute, we've just done a full video on it, detailing it and how it relates to the timing of Jesus Christ and how it's the best argument to give to Jewish friends and family. So if you're a member of the New St. Thomas Institute, head over to newstthomas.com, sign in and watch that video. I think during the time of me recording this podcast, it's not yet up, but it has been recorded and it's ready to go. So if you don't see it right away, if you're listening to this podcast, the day it comes out, you might not see it, but wait a little bit and you will see it. So we see 42 months. Um, this also Okay, so it relates to Daniel 7. It also relates to the three and a half years of drought um, between Elijah's first appearance and the defeat of the prophets of Baal that happened on Mount Carmel. You can read about that in 1 Kings. Uh, St. James also talks about it in the epistle of St. James. So as you know, seven is a number in the Bible of covenantal perfection, of holiness, of sanctity. Three and a half is a broken seven. It's a broken alleluia. It's like been chopped in half, like a karate kid with a board cut the board right in half. So three and a half shows that something is not right. Something is just not quite right. And so this time period of persecution is three and a half years, 42 months, or 1,260 days. We'll see all of those um, designations used here in the book of Revelation moving forward. It's a half of a seven. It's less than perfect. It's half of perfect. But also from a preterist point of view, and by preterist I mean seeing these as fulfilled in the past, Nero's persecution of the church, the first Roman persecution, lasted exactly 40 
42 months. That's right, 42 months. So the persecution by which St. Paul was martyred and St. Peter was martyred and St. James the Less was martyred and all the apostles, pretty much except for James the Greater, they were killed during this time period, during this neuronic persecution, the persecution of Nero, it lasted 42 months. Oh, and I should say John, of course, was not martyred because he's alive receiving the, uh, the vision here. Okay, so in verse 3 it says, And I will give my two witnesses power to prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. So here again we see 1,260 days. That's 42 months, three and a half years. And these two witnesses. Now, who are these two witnesses? We're going to look at the church fathers, looking at Thomas Aquinas, look at a preterist point of view. I probably won't solve it perfectly for you, but I think you'll get the gist of it. Um, before we do that, let's read a little bit more about these two witnesses and then how they relate to the Old Testament, and that'll give us a lot of clues. So in verse 4, we read, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, thus he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to afflict the heaven with every plague as often as they desire. Verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, this is the first mention of the beast, by the way, the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit, the abyss, will make war upon them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is allegorically called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Verse 9. By the way, did you notice there, the city where they're killed is where their Lord was crucified? That is Jerusalem. And here Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem, which was once a holy city, the location of God's covenantal graces and blessings, has now become like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Egypt. It is an idolatrous, evil place. More on that later. Verse 9, For three days and a half, men from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the land. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And in the sight of their foes, they went up to heaven in a cloud. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Okay, so who are these two witnesses? I mean, it's pretty, pretty apocalyptic. These guys have a lot, a lot of power. Okay, well, first off, the two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. That immediately makes us think of Elijah, in the Old Testament, the great prophet 
Likewise, we see that their power, their ministry is given to them for 1,260 days. This is, again, three and a half years or 42 months. This time period is also related to Elijah. Now, for those of you that don't know, Elijah is associated with Mount Carmel, which is, of course, associated with the Carmelites and the brown scapular. But he is seen as the champion of Israel and of God against the prophets of Baal. Baal was a false god, um, an idol, that the Israelites were tempted to worship. And Elijah put them up to a challenge. And to cut to the short version, the prophets couldn't get their God to respond, and Elijah could get the true God to respond. And so all the false prophets of Baal were killed. They were destroyed. And so the story of Elijah is one of truth, prophecy, courage, and the destruction of evil and idolatry. That is the sign and symbol of Elijah, and it seems very clear that these two prophets so far have a characteristic or ministry that is wrapped up in Elijah's mission, which is truth against idolatry. Then St. John explains that they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Now this is referring to the prophet Zechariah who talks about the two sons of oil that will lead God's people. And in that context, it's Joshua, the priest, and Zerubbabel, who is a king. So Israel is led by a high priest and a high king, and that's what's being referenced here in Zechariah. We see this in the book of Ezra, also in the prophet Haggai. So he's referring back to a duo, a dynamic duo that will lead the people of Israel. Then he goes on to say, if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. So it's like they have flamethrowers coming out of their mouth. Is this literal? Probably not. The fire here is the word of God. The word of God is associated with fire. If you want to step to God, if you want to blaspheme, if you want to promote idolatry, they will destroy you with the fire of their mouth. That is the prophecies, the truth that they preach. It also says that they have power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. This goes right back to 1 Kings chapter 7. This was something that Elijah did to discipline the people of Israel. He stopped up the skies for 1,260 days. That's, again, as you guessed, three and a half years. Also, it says that the witnesses have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague. Who is this? This is Moses. So these two witnesses have the attributes of Elijah the prophet and Moses the prophet. Now, Elijah and Moses are already dead. They're gone. And you'll remember the transfiguration of Christ when he shines like the sun. Who is with him? Moses and Elijah. This, I think, further confirms, what am I saying here? Confirms not conforms, further confirms for us that the mighty angel, the mighty messenger that we saw just a few verses before is Christ. Why do I say that? Well, in this passage, grouped together, we have the mighty angel 
whose face is shining like the sun, like in the transfiguration. And then we have these two auxiliary witnesses, Moses and Elijah. And there's no doubt. Moses is one who turned water into blood and smote the earth uh, or the land of Egypt with plagues. Elijah is the one who shut up heaven with rain and wore sackcloth. There it is. So we have the threesome there, Christ, Moses, and Elijah. So as John takes the scroll from the Messiah, from Jesus Christ, he's told to measure the temple, to prophesy, and then he sees these two witnesses. So who are these two witnesses? Are they actually Moses and Elijah, or are they stand-ins or symbols for others? Well, there's three opinions that I'm aware of on the two witnesses. The very strict preterist interpretation, which sees almost everything in these chapters as relating to the past, something that happened in the first century, sees the two witnesses as the first witness being all the law and the prophets. So Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Haggai and Malachi, all the Old Testament prophets, Elijah, I'm sorry, did I say Elijah? Yeah, yeah, Elijah, all of them. And then the second witness being John the Baptist. He is the end of the prophets. John the Baptist is both Old Covenant and New Covenant. And Christ tells us that John the Baptist is Elijah the second time around, not reincarnated, but that he signifies the power of Elijah. He was the Elijah who was to make ready the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so really strict preterist interpreters will say that the two witnesses are all the Old Testament prophets and then the one New Testament prophet that prepares the way for Jesus, John the Baptist. And as we read, you know, these, these uh, witnesses are killed and destroyed in Jerusalem. And, of course, Christ our Lord tells us that no prophet can be killed away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, although they profess to be the people of God, they're often the very ones that kill the true prophets that come from Yahweh. Now, another interpretation is that the two witnesses are Peter and Paul. I've seen this in the Navarre Bible Commentary. Um, I think this is the least best or the least satisfying answer. Um, first of all, we never see Peter and Paul described as a Moses or as an Elijah figure. Um, also, we don't see their ministries looking like this. It's true that they are martyred, but they're martyred in Rome. And here it says that they're martyred in the city where their Lord was crucified. And we all know that Jesus wasn't crucified in Rome. He was crucified in Jerusalem. So these witnesses, these two witnesses died in Jerusalem, not in Rome. So I think the idea that the two witnesses are Peter and Paul, I kind of wish it were true because it'd be really cool for papal arguments, but I just don't see it fitting. I don't see it at all. Now, the third option is a futurist option, and that is that the two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah. And this has the strongest testimony in the Catholic tradition. For example, St. Augustine teaches that Enoch and Elijah, or Henoch and Elias in the Latin, are the two witnesses. The reason 
St. Augustine says this is because Enoch and Elijah never died. If you go back to Genesis, you see that Enoch was taken up into heaven before he died. He was 365 years old. That's a perfect solar number, 365. And Elijah, as you know, was taken up in chariots of fire. Those two men are the only two men who have never died. And according to the fathers, they are waiting somewhere outside the atmosphere, but not in heaven with the beatific vision, and that they will return to fight the Antichrist, and the Antichrist will kill them. You can see how it's useful that they didn't die because they need to be killed finally by the beast who emerges out of the abyss, as we just read. Saint, uh, so St. Augustine teaches this, but St. Thomas Aquinas affirms this explicitly, that Enoch and Elijah are indeed the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. St. Thomas Aquinas writes this in the Summa Theologiae, Part 3, Question 49, Article 5. It's a reply to Objection 2. Quote, St. Thomas Aquinas, Elijah was taken up into the atmospheric heaven, but not to the Empyrean heaven, that's where the Beatific vision is, which is the abode of the saints. And likewise, and likewise, Enoch was translated into the earthly paradise, where he is believed to live with Elijah until the coming of Antichrist. End quote. So Thomas Aquinas is saying, look, Elijah and Enoch were taken up into heaven, but they didn't go to the heaven of the saints. They didn't go into the beatific vision. They're out there somewhere, and they will return to do battle with the Antichrist. So for Thomas Aquinas, there's the atmosphere where the birds fly. And then there is a atmospheric heaven where the planets orbit, what we would call outer space. And then there's the third heaven, which is called the Empyrean heaven or the fiery heaven. And that is where God dwells with the Blessed Mother and with all the saints. That's where you have the angels and the beatific vision. So for Thomas, Enoch and Elijah are in level two. The atmospheric heaven, I think we would just call that outer space. It's a very interesting um, thing to think about of Enoch and Elijah floating in space, waiting to come back to fight the Antichrist. But that's the majority Catholic position. I like options one and three, and as you know, if you've listened to the first episode in this Revelation series, I think there's always a preterist and a futurist interpretation of these passages. I think the idea that the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist signify the two prophets in a preterist uh, viewpoint, but in the futurist viewpoint, I'm convinced that Enoch and Elijah will return to fight the Antichrist and will be these two final witnesses against all that is evil, against the beast who comes from the abyss. And now we need to turn our attention to the beast. The beast is going to be introduced in chapter 13. We are only in chapter 11, but here John gives us a sneak preview of details to come with the beast. Notice that the beast comes up from the abyss. Everybody knows immediately who we're talking about here. We're talking about Satan. Satan comes from hell. He makes war against the two witnesses, and he wants to kill them. Now, this is the first time beast is mentioned, and I want to just touch on the word beast. We'll get more into it when we get to chapter 13, but beasts are 
irrational animals. Every time we sin, according to the Catholic Church, according to the saints, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, we become like irrational animals. We humans are in the image of God because we have an intellect. But we also have bodies. So we have an intellect and a will like God and the angels, but we have physical bodies with nostrils and fingernails and hair and intestines just like the beasts. Whenever we sin, we do injustice to our intellect and will, and we turn and become like the animals, like a beast. If you become drunk, you drink too much alcohol, guess what? You start to act like an animal. You may even start using the bathroom in places where animals go, and you might start doing things that are lewd and lustful, just like animals do. That's because when you drink alcohol, you diminish the power of your intellect and of your will. It impedes you. That's why getting drunk is a very serious mortal sin. So anytime we sin, we become like the beast. And in Judaism, in the religion of the Old Testament that was revealed through Moses, there are kosher laws. There are certain animals you can eat and certain animals you can't eat. And the rules pretty much come down to is this meat more satanic or not? Now, what do I mean by satanic? Well, if it resembles the serpent, or if it is a serpent, it's unclean. What do serpents do? They go around on their stomach. They're very much in connection with the earth, that which is lower. And so any kind of animal that crawls on its belly or walks on the pads of its feet is unclean, like a cat. But if it has hoofs, it's lifted off the earth, and therefore it's kosher. Uh, so if you look at the kosher laws, you'll see that there is this great interest in animals that are off the ground, that don't touch the dirt, and that don't eat unclean things. Because remember, Satan is here to devour us like a snake, to inject the poison in us, to make us weak, and then to eat us. He wants to eat other animals. So animals that are eating unclean things, dirty things, that are like snakes. And so this is where the idea of the beast comes from. The beast who wants to destroy us. The beast who wants us to become like serpents. Okay, so finally we get here to the seventh trumpet. The angel is going to blow the horn and bring this cycle of the seven trumpets to an end. Now you can see why we need to do a whole second episode just for the seventh trumpet, because of this amazing interlude with the giant angel, the two witnesses, and then the preview of the beast. Okay, verse 15, just the last four verses here. Then, alas, it's not really in the script, the word alas is not there. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This language, by the way, is taken from Daniel. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, that you have taken your great power and began and begun to reign. The nations raged. But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and saints, 
and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hell. End quote. Now the very next verse is going to say, And behold, there was a woman. That's Mary. But that's next time. That's the next episode when we get into chapter 12 and we see this great woman in her son. What you've been able to notice so far is over and over we're seeing images of Christ. He's casted in different light every single time, but it's Christ who's continually intervening into history, coming in, sending witnesses, sending truth so that we can be saved. Thanks for listening this week. I feel like we covered a lot. My voice is almost kind of weak because we've been going through so much and I've been very enthusiastic. I hope I haven't been shouting on the microphone and, and hurting your ears. But I really enjoyed this one. And I think you can see how difficult these two chapters are to interpret because we have this giant angel who sure does look and act like Jesus Christ. And then we have these two witnesses who sure do look like Moses and Elijah. But somehow we have to understand all of this as it relates to the new covenant and the little scroll and measuring the temple and then the coming of the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet is really what cracks open the book of Revelation. So far, we've only done the first half. And I would argue these first 11 chapters are all the buildup to what is manifested and revealed in chapter 12, chapter 13, 14, 15, as we get into the lady, her son, St. Michael, the beasts, Satan, the whore of Babylon, the new Jerusalem. So thanks again for listening. I hope you're enjoying this. I hope most of all you're learning a ton of information, not only about the book of Revelation, but your own faith and about Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our witness, and as our protector. He told us, he told you, he told me, that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So until next time, go out there and be salty. podcast was brought to you by the new St. Thomas Institute. Discover online Catholic classes and earn your certificate in Catholic theology at the new St. Thomas Institute. To register for online Catholic classes, please visit newsaintthomas.com. That's newsaintthomas.com.